Thank you very much, guys, for your papers. Uh, provided, they provided a great uh, cannon fodder for this class. And I wanted to start out, um, but with a couple of papers, and this would be sort of in summary. Uh, I'm using, uh, Josh, I'm going to use your paper here. Your first sentence under the summary was, hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation or the theory which stands behind the actual performance of exegesis. Now, that's well put. So there were a number of questions that people raised about, um, uh, you know, what this is. For example, uh, Andy, uh, you said here, uh, perhaps this is a dumb question. Well, it is. Uh, to what extent do exegesis and hermeneutics overlap? Uh, I guess they're overlapping all the time. They don't kind of really overlap. One is the theory of what you're doing, and the other is actually doing it. The simplest way to illustrate this, and I may have mentioned this last time, simplest way to illustrate this is in parable interpretation. So if you take something like the parable of the sower and the seed, uh, are you able to say that each of the uh, things, each of the soils is a particular thing or a kind of person? Well, Jesus interprets it that way. Uh, but let, let's go to one where he maybe doesn't interpret it that way. Uh, let's take the, uh, the guy, friend who comes at midnight and asks for three loaves because a visitor has come. Now, can you make a point of the meaning of the three loaves? Or how about that it's at midnight? Or that it's a friend? See, can we push details or not? That's a hermeneutical issue. That's your theory of what you can do, not only to this text, but to any text. Now, let's say we decide you can push the details. Okay. Now, you're getting to exegesis. So what do the three loaves stand for? Okay. Now, at that point, you're actually doing, to quote the great error, the actual performance of exegesis. Now you're actually interpreting that text. So, so hermeneutics is the theory of what you're doing. And exegesis is actually doing it to a text. Now, I'll tell you where this comes home to roost. I am currently involved in a CTCR consultation on the relationship between men and women. That's the Commission on Theology and Church Relations. And they're considering all kinds of passages that deal with men and women. Well, an interesting question arose. Can you interpret events and make them prescriptive. So in other words, you have an event in the Bible. It's descriptive of what happened. Like Jesus chose 12 male disciples. That's descriptive. Is that also possibly prescriptive of what we can do? Or let's take one from the Old Testament. Deborah led the children of Israel for a while. That's descriptive. Can that be prescriptive of women in leadership positions. Now, you have to decide whether narrative, I'll be kind of poetic about this, narrative 
can be an imperative. Is, is this possible? Or is narrative purely descriptive and anything that comes off of narrative is speculation as far as applying it? See, Andy, that would be a hermeneutical issue. And I brought this up to the consultation. And I said, folks, the women in on this too, ladies and gentlemen, we just got to decide whether you can interpret narrative as authoritative beyond the narrative <coughs> itself. And notice, Andy, I'm not doing it to any particular narrative. It's a kind of an abstract discussion of the principle. That is the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis. And as I said last time, guys, the whole game is hermeneutics. Because that's where all the controversial stuff lies. You know, like this. Yeah. So in that way, does that open up a can of worms in the fact where you got a nice narrative going and then God speaks? And is that, in, in some ways, are you able to separate the fact that God's speaking from the narrative or do you have to take that in the whole, whether in the whole well, narrative? See, you're raising a question. You know, if, if God speaks, does that suddenly become authoritative but the narrative wasn't, you know? In, in chapter 13, when we're dealing with application, we deal with this problem. When, when Paul and Barnabas split up after the first missionary journey, then Paul goes with Silas after that. Can you make anything out of that? I mean, was, was this, does this show something like... Um, if two people doing God's work can't get along, they should split up and work effectively separately? Because uh, Barnabas went with John Mark and Paul went with Silas? Or is this like a bad thing? That's, that's a kind of a no-no and those guys should have been <laughs> admonished to get along? Or is it just a description of what happened? And you can't draw any conclusions from that. See, So these are the kinds of questions that, that really arise with hermeneutics, and we're going to try to meet these head-on, full force in this class. This is why the theoretical side of this is so critical. Now, um, I think I want to spend a lot of time today talking about modernism and postmodernism. And in a fit of contemporaneity, I'm going to lurch headlong into the late 20th century and try to use some video. All right? For those watching, we are in the 21st century. Um, but um, uh, as a sort of an introduction to this, would you take your texts and take a look at the preface? Because in some of the older editions, the preface on page 12, and this is kind of critical actually, where there's a discussion of postmodern perspective at the bottom of 11, and then at the very bottom of 11 it says, the early church was right, only believers, and here's what my printing has, can truly interpret the sacred books of God. That's not a good statement. What, what this has to be changed to is the following. And please make the change as necessary. 
So starting at the bottom of 11, only believers can, now cross out truly, can interpret the sacred books of God for all their worth. For all their worth. I'll put this up on the board. And we might want to put it in quotes. So, for all they are worth. Like that. This is a very important change, guys, because as you'll see in my argumentation in chapter 11, I think it is a very bad position to take. And Andy, this is also part of hermeneutics. What role does the Holy Spirit play? It is a very bad position to take to say that people who are not believers cannot interpret the Bible. They can, but what they can't do is interpret it for all it's worth. So I don't want to give people the impression that if you don't have the Spirit, you can't know anything. That's really not right, because a lot of good insights have come from people who really are not true believers. But you can't go the whole way, so to speak. So I want to make that uh, a specific change for you to do. Now, the issue of postmodernity came up in the preface. And then, if you'll go to page 15, to that long footnote 7 on page 15, which I referred to. And I'll tell you what, guys. I would really like you to get these four points under control. You're, you're going to find out that this is really valuable. Four points, characteristics of modernity, and the four characteristics that overturn all that for postmodernity. So for modernity. Number one, the belief in the superiority of reason. Descartes would be a perfect example of that, the French philosopher. Number two, objective assessment of data. You can stand apart from what you're observing and not influence it, objectively observe it. I would say. This is, um, how should we put it? Um, this is science as popularly understood. Third, comprehensive explanation of what's under discussion. Comprehensive explanation. So in other words, not only are we going to have explanation, but it's going to be totalizing. We will get a full picture of the universe if we understand the world of quantum physics. And fourth, progress, including the inevitability of progress. So as we learn more, we master more of the world, and we make progress, and things get better. Now, you people, Ozzy, what year were you born? 1985. OK, well, you're younger than my son. That's pathetic. Uh, 
But see, you, you guys were not born in the 40s and 50s when all of these four principles were absolutely in place. Uh, medicine, you know, people are figuring you find more vaccines, stuff's getting better. You get more chemicals, the crops will grow better. Now, essentially, post-modernity turns every one of those four things on its head. So number one, there is distrust of reason, with people now thinking that emotions are equally important, or intuition. It's not a mistake that there is a rise in the use of uh, the horoscope in recent years, or crystals, or something like that, going to tarot card reading. Distrust of reason. The next one, which is, which is the one that's opposite objective assessment of data, is, is in, in many ways, I think, the most important. Perspectivalism. Now, there is no objective assessment of data. There's only your view, your perspective, your understanding, the view that you have from your vantage point. And this is allied with number three. There's no more any concept <coughs> of a comprehensive explanation. Now, everything is about models. There's a model of light as waves and a model of light as particles. But there isn't sort of a true comprehensive explanation of light. There are models that we use. And finally, and I think for the average person, this one is the most obvious. There's loss of the notion of progress, especially the notion of uh, the inevitability of progress. So uh, you know, I could see the look on the faces of some of you when I was talking about you know, we get more vaccines, everything gets better. We get more chemicals, the crops grow better. We are mastering our environment. I mean, the, the whole green movement is so postmodern that our mastery of the environment is essentially destructive in this. And we've got to withdraw from all that. So, uh, uh, you know, essentially, the modern world has led us astray. Thus you go, I'm going to move to the board here, thus you go from utopian visions of society to dystopian visions of society. Dys meaning bad or difficult. Omega Man, Mad Max, all these kinds of movies. I mean, have you, have you noticed all the sci-fi movies are actually about the triumph of the dark side, of evil, of destruction. Stuff goes to pot. 
Uh, everything is in decline. And so the future, and this includes my favorite movie, which is Terminator 1. Not Terminator 2, but Terminator 1, where you can see the vision of the future as dystopia. Now, what's the cause of all of this? I think this is really important. In my opinion, the cause of all of this has its roots in the late 19th and early 20th century in theoretical physics, and especially in high-energy nuclear physics, but it's also related to Einstein's theory of relativity of the macro world. So in the early 19th century, like 1905, uh, Einstein has his theories of relativity published, and there is the general and specific theory of relativity and so forth. And you start to have notions like this. Start to have notions like this. The closer you approach the speed of light, the more time <laughs> slows down. As you approach the speed of light, stuff gets shorter. Well, all of a sudden, you don't have a concrete, stable world about you. This is peanuts, though, compared to the world of quantum physics. And what happens in the world of physics, of high-energy subnuclear physics, is they start to discover that reality is exceedingly strange, and a word I like to use, that reality is non or counterintuitive. So you think there will be equal and opposite reactions to things. You think that the the uh, trajectory of a projectile is re is uh, predictable. No, it's not. Stuff happens by chance. Stuff may actually exhibit the characteristics of waves, and then it may exhibit the characteristics of particles. And you know what, Grayson? It might be different depending on whether you're looking or not. So that suddenly you start to become, a, become part of the system. There's no objective standing apart. Now. The ed tech guys found a fantastic little five-minute uh, five video that's going to explain this, which we're going to take a look at right now. This is a really terrific view of quantum physics and how this affects our understanding of reality. And here we are, the granddaddy of all quantum weirdness, the infamous double-slit experiment. To understand this experiment, we first need to see how particles, or little balls of matter, act. If we randomly shoot a small object, say a marble, at the screen, we see a pattern on the back wall where they went through the slit and hit. Now. If we add a second slit, we would expect to see a second band duplicated to the right. Now, let's look at waves. 
the waves hit the slip and radiate out, striking the back wall with the most intensity directly in line with the slip. The line of brightness on the back screen shows that intensity. This is similar to the line the marbles make. But when we add the second slip, something different happens. If the top of one wave meets the bottom of another wave, they cancel each other out. So now there is an interference pattern on the back wall. Places where the two tops meet are the highest intensity, the bright lines, and where they cancel, there is nothing. So, when we throw things, that is, matter, through two slits, we get this, two bands of hits. And with waves, we get an interference pattern of many bands. Good so far. Now, let's go quantum. <laughs> An electron is a tiny, tiny bit of matter, like a tiny marble. Let's fire a stream through one slit. It behaves just like the marble, a single band. So, if we shoot these tiny bits through two slits, we should get, like the marbles, two bands. What? An interference pattern. We fired electrons, tiny bits of matter, through. But we get a pattern like waves, not like little marbles. How? How could pieces of matter create an interference pattern like a wave? It doesn't make sense. But physicists are clever. They thought maybe those little balls are bouncing off each other and creating that pattern. Now watch this. So, they decide to shoot electrons through one at a time. There is no way they could interfere with each other. But after an hour of this, the same interference pattern is seen to emerge. The conclusion is inescapable. The single electron leaves as a particle, becomes a wave of potentials, goes through both slits, and interferes with itself to hit the wall like a particle. But mathematically, it's even stranger. It goes through both slits and it goes through neither. And it goes through just one and it goes through just the other. All of these possibilities are in superposition with each other. But physicists were completely baffled by this. So they decided to peek and see which slit it actually goes through. They put a measuring device by one slit see which one it went through and let it fly. <laughs> but the quantum world is far more mysterious than they could have imagined. When they observed, the electron went back to behaving like a little marble. It produced a pattern of two bands, not an interference pattern of many. The very act of measuring or observing which slit it went through meant it only went through one, not both. The electron decided to act differently, as though it was aware it was being watched. And it was here 
that physicists stepped forever into the strange never world of quantum events. What is matter? Marbles or waves? And waves of what? And what does an observer have to do with any of this? The observer collapsed the wave function simply by observing. So this, this is an extremely famous experiment. the so-called double-slit experiment. I want to put a book up here for you to observe. This is, this is a highly influential book called Six Easy Pieces, uh, Physics Explained by its most brilliant teacher, Richard Feynman. might want to note that name. Uh, he got a... Um, he got a Nobel Prize for theoretical physics. He's a Caltech, was a Caltech professor, died in the late 80s. But uh, at Joel Okamoto on our faculty put me on to him. He is widely considered to be the greatest physics teacher of the 20th century. And he gave uh, lectures at the university uh, that were designed for the students, but they were so brilliant that the other professors would come and listen to them. The sixth chapter of Six Easy Pieces is on quantum behavior and has, um, and has a description of, uh, of exactly what Professor Q on there was talking about. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, I'm reading from Six Easy Pieces, page 126. The el electrons arrive in lumps like particles and the probability of arrival of these lumps is distributed like the distribution of intensity of a wave. It is in this sense that an electron behaves sometimes like a particle and sometimes like a wave. And uh, the essential thing that he discusses in this book <coughs> is that um, it's it's only probability at the quantum level. Predictions of what any given electron will do are totally impossible to make. So the world has gone from the Newtonian world, which is essentially a kind of a billiard ball world, equal and opposite reactions. You can predict trajectories and so on, uh, to one in which the world is fundamentally non-intuitive or anti-intuitive. Waves and particles. Stuff behaves differently if you're looking. The observer becomes part of the system, not standing apart from the system. Now, by the way, uh, I did an article, um, and we'll be taking a look at this later on in the course, reading scripture as Lutherans in the postmodern era. And in the first several pages of this article, which, by the way, is in Lutheran Quarterly, volume 14 in the year 2000, <clears throat> in the first couple of pages, I review a lot of the discoveries of physics in the 20th century. I spent a couple of years reading about quantum and relativity theory and stuff like that. 
And what I try to do, and this is what we'll be doing later, is I try to relate this actually to the way the Bible's theology is set up. And you'll see how I try to work all that out. But I'm referring to the article right now simply uh, for the first part of it where I'm contending that what we just saw on that film essentially is what has captured the mind and thinking of the Western world since probably World War II. And so if you could, if I could put it like this, that essentially the, um, essentially the insights of quantum and of relativity theory have been applied by analogy to the society, to art, to literature, and so on, so that now people no longer believe in objective assessment of anything. In other words, observers affect the data. People no longer believe in a comprehensive understanding. You've only got, you could see from the film, you've got a particle theory of light and you have a wave theory of light, but you don't have a unified theory of light. It's even worse than this, guys. The world of quantum does not square with the world of relativity theory, which is essentially related to gravity. And one of the big goals, one of the big, the, the, what would you say, the golden apple, the golden ring that people are looking at is the following. Gut. Grand unification theory. And the definition of grand unification theory is, is there a comprehensive explanation that encompasses both relativity theory and quantum? And at the present time, there is not. The best attempt to do this is string theory. String theory is an attempt at gut, at a grand unification theory. And it's certainly not embraced by all scientists by any means. Now, this leaking, I guess you would say, this leaking of physics into other realms, the interpretation of literature, the interpretation of, uh, uh, of life itself, the interpretation of art, <clears throat> has actually affected the way everybody thinks. There is not a person in this room, none of your classmates, believe that perspective is not critical. Hey, our synod, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which would be very shocked to learn that it is postmodernist, is very postmodernist. For example, back in the early 90s, a conference was put together to uh, determine the nature of the church and uh, how the church ought to be organized, ministry, uh, church and ministry issues, and so on like this, mission of the church. And how did they do it? Did they do the modernist thing? 
Here's the modernist thing. The modernist thing is you'd go to the seminary and get the authorities to give you objective, authoritative uh, interpretations of the scriptures and the Lutheran confessions. No. What they did was they gathered 200 people from different perspectives. And among these 200, that is to say, Grayson, a full 1%, two people, one from each seminary, one from each seminary were chosen, and 198 other people, young and old, men and women, black and white, rich and poor, so that you could get various perspectives on an issue. That is totally a postmodernist move. No modernist would ever believe that you should do that. What you should do is get authorities who can look objectively at the data. Now, what's happened, and a number of you in your papers asked about this. What's happened, I think, is there are sort of two versions of postmodernism. <coughs> I like to call it radical postmodernism and soft postmodernism, something like that. Now, let me put it up like this on the board. We'll start with modernism. Modernism believes that there is objective data and reality and that there is objective access to this and understanding. That's modernism. Postmodernism has, as I said, two versions. Here's radical. Radical POMO, radical postmodernism. There is no objective data or reality and there is no objective access or understanding. Soft postmodernism would say that there is objective data and reality, but that there is no objective access or understanding. So in other words, this is allied with modernism here, and it is allied with radical postmodernism there. As you should have been able to see, and we'll be talking about this repeatedly throughout the course, 
my position is the one on the right, soft postmodernism. So there is a reality out there. We do not just construct our reality, but that there is no objective access or understanding of that reality. Now, this creates huge questions. And I understand this. And we'll be fighting about this for 10 weeks. How can you say anything about anything? You know, how do we argue our positions against other people? The two cheap, quick, dirty, and nuclear positions are modernism and radical postmodernism. Everything's objective. We can do objective assessment. Or, hey, nothing objective out there. We can't do objective assessment of anything. But I think our confession is that there is a reality, as we confess in the creed. But our access to that can never be such, like say through the scriptures, can never be such that we stand apart, do not affect the data that we are observing, and do not um, become a factor in the interpretation or in the understanding that we're trying to achieve. That, so this is essentially, if, if you uh, take a look again at, uh, at the preface and so on, this is the position that I am essentially talking about. So as a result, what you actually have, I think, <coughs> is Is, is this situation between radical postmodernism and soft postmodernism. Radical postmodernism is going to take one of two views. It will either show how anything that's spoken or written actually furthers the self-interest of the party who is writing or speaking that it itself has no objective claim to anything, but everything's kind of rhetorical. <clears throat> or it will tend to take things in an existential <coughs> way, such that whatever is coming at me is a stimulus, as I perceive it. And it will help me in maybe my self-understanding or whatever, but I'm not trying to interpret any objective thing out there. The idea here is more like this, that you're trying to get in. It's not objective. We're not trying to stand apart from the data. We're not, a tr we're not trying to be uninvolved. We're trying to be involved in the right way. We're trying to get in sync with what we're talking about. Now, <coughs> a couple of years ago, a guy wrote a reaction paper, which I kept. Uh, because it spoke specifically about this very well. <clears throat> this was from, believe it or not, 1998, Matt Thompson's paper. <clears throat> and here's what he said. Accepting the view that no reading of a text is neutral or objective, but that the stance or perspective of the reader impacts the interpretation, I found your concern uh, to be excellent. We know that our perspective will impact the interpretation. Our goal is to pull out the meaning which, which the author intended. And so we need to strive to conform our perspective 
such that that perspective does justice to the author's intentions. In other words, not being objective, but getting in sync with the author. This exists in the engineering field. When I was at Georgia Tech, we would measure the temperature and velocity of fl uh, fluid flow, but the goal was to measure without changing the flow. The problem with all or most measuring techniques is that those techniques change the system you're measuring. Say you'd like to measure the temperature of an 80 degree centigrade <laughs> bath of water. The temperature, stands for perspective, of the thermometer, the reader, will impact the measured temperature, interpretation, of the water bath, which is the text. The bath is at 80 degrees to begin with, but once you introduce a 23 degree centigrade thermometer, the thermometer will cool the bath slightly and the resulting measure could be 78 degrees. So he goes on to say, an ideal thermometer begins the measurement process at the same temperature as the object it is measuring. This ties in with your statement that only believers can truly interpret the sacred books of God. Now I would say again, for all their worth. Just as the thermometer must be in thermal equilibrium with the bath prior to measurement, a reader must be in some sort of equilibrium with the text such that the message is heard correctly. Now, guys, that's why I unload my presuppositions and beliefs in the introductory chapter. See? This is my temperature of the thermometer. Okay? And in chapter 11, we're going to talk about how you might know if you're in equilibrium with the text or not. So in other words, this is a great idea. How do you know if you're doing it? There are all kinds of problems. I understand this. But you cannot take refuge. This is a really key point. You cannot take refuge in a false objectivity. The problems of postmodernism cannot be solved by pretending that modernism is correct and that there are objective interpretations of data. It would be nice to believe that, but it's not true. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why, uh, in general, I tend not to be on the same page as Edward Jean Veith of Concordia Mequon who has a much darker view of postmodernism than I do. I do not believe that modernism was particularly our friend as Christians. It gave us the closed universe. It gave us a kind of a deterministic understanding of things so that essentially we could not get see God in any place in the system. So, um, Modernism is not our friend. Radical postmodernism is not our friend. It is my belief, along with about, oh, I'd say three other guys on the faculty here, that, uh, that you've got to be an operating postmodernist. And how we're going to understand all of that is part of the game. <clears throat> By the way, I forgot to give you this here before, or to show you this. Uh, you know, if you don't think 
that the world's become postmodernist. Check this out. Go to the down camera here. <clears throat> this is the fall wedding guide of the Ladue News. Okay? Now, on page 20 of the fall wedding guide is this story. Two traditions, one day. And this is about a Western guy and an Indian gal who were getting married. Now, this is an incredible story. Two families, two cultures, two traditions, one day. That describes the mar marriage of Mira Patel and James Panilla on June 28th, an all-day affair embracing both his Catholic and her Hindu beliefs and ending in one giant celebration. It did present some challenges. <laughs> but there was no question we'd incorporate both aspects, says Patel. The day began with a Catholic ceremony at St. Joseph's Church in Clayton, followed by an Indian feast catered by India's Razoy at the Radisson, and so on and so forth. Now, I tell you what, you couldn't have got away with that in, in the Eisenhower era in the 50s for love or money. But what's the deal? It's all about perspective. She's got her perspective, he's got his perspective, and you combine them and kind of we're all operating on equal grounds. Now, if you'll open your books. Take a look at the chart on page 17 with the very basic communication model. Now I would like to add at this point, for those of you who are communication majors, and I saw this in your paper, please turn to page 212. There's the nuclear version of the communications model. All right, so this is going to get really big and complicated. There were a few really nice questions about shouldn't stuff go in. If you can see on page 212, under channel there, there's some crosshatch lines. Those of you who ask about interference and all that kind of stuff, uh, that's in there. But anyway, return to page 17, and we'll take a look at the basic one. And what I'd like to say is that modernism essentially focused on the author or writer on the left side. And it focused on the text in the middle. And it thought it could do objective assessment of those things. It avoided the reader on the right side because the reader would be subjective receptor element. I think the way we have been influenced by postmodernism arising from theoretical physics leads us to believe that you can't take one of the parts out. So if you'll go now to page 19 to the triptych, and by the way, this triptych. Uh, is like the big altar pieces in Europe. 
they have these wings. The outer wings um, fold in to cover the centerpiece like this. And so there will be something like this. The center might have Christ on the cross, and this wing would, might be the Annunciation, and this would be the Ascension into Heaven, something like that. But this triptych is helpful because all pieces have got to be held together. <clears throat> and essentially, modernism is fascinated with the author and text part. And postmodernism has said, you know what, folks? There is no objective assessment of data. The receptor is always a factor. Now, what happened, as it were, is that radical postmodernism starts living in the right-hand panel. And radical postmodernism starts saying, it's all about the receptor. Look, up here on the board. There is no objective data or reality. What you perceive is what you get. And therefore, a text is essentially a catalyst to stimulate your thinking. Or a catalyst to drive you to your own self-understanding. But not something that's trying to communicate information. Now, with that, are there any questions about this, um, <clears throat> this sort of basic idea, uh, the basic postmodernism stuff? Um, uh, then, then I'm going to get specifically to your papers. And I, I mean, this is sort of the centerpiece issue of this chapter. It's huge. It's going to stalk us, Josh, as a bait noir, as a black beast throughout this book. And it will all come home to roost in chapters 10 and 11. To mix a metaphor here, the bait noir does not come home to roost. But uh, <laughs> it will, where we'll try to work out if there's any control on this stuff. But it's really as critical as I'm talking about. And I want to tell you guys this. When you go to your parishes, when you go to your field workplaces, when you go back home to your church, people think like this. There are people doing post-structuralist, which is a kind of a version of postmodernist, deconstructionist readings of literature in high school. You've got to be aware of these kinds of issues. You really do have to be aware. So uh, I'm trying to set the table. And I think this is as good a time as any to say the following. This course is about general interpretation as much as anything else. Yes, it's about biblical hermeneutics. But biblical hermeneutics is, in some set sense, a subset of general epistemology and understanding. It is a subset of how we deal with the world around us, how we make sense out of it, how we deal with literature and life. So uh, one of you, I have this paper set aside here, one of you said, is what you're talking about here actually of importance to, uh, for interpersonal relations and communication. Who, who said that? 
whose paper was it? Somebody take credit for it. It was really a good question. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, way to lie. All right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yes, a as a matter of fact, this is precisely the case that what we're talking about is going to have huge resonances beyond interpreting the Bible, but interpreting situations, people, society, life itself, and so on. This is why, in my opinion, now those of you <clears throat> like Ozzy, who have had me for Greek, know how enthused I was about teaching the Greek course. Greek bears, is, has no candle to compare to this course in its importance. This is by far the most important course at the seminary in any department. All of the issues you're going to confront in terms of pastoral practice, um, systematic consideration of various things and so on, they're going to all come back to hermeneutical issues. Very seldom do problems involve kind of facts or something like that. It's always about interpretation of things. So how you, this is why we spend time on this first section and we're going to allow this to slop over to the next period. Uh, look at some of your very important questions that you raised and then um, uh, move on to chapter four um, uh, for, for the next unit. And by the way, <clears throat> uh, chapter four, I want you to uh, focus there uh, as it is in the assignment. Make sure you see how that assignment is worded. Um, that we're going to look at traditional linguistic interpretation. And by the way, let me tell you, we will not be using, we will not be looking at chapters one, two, and three now. We'll do them at the end on textual criticism. So we do text criticism at the end, and that part is kind of a <coughs> integer, so to speak. It's its own discrete part, and we can, we can take that at the end. So you'll be going to chapter 4, and it's addendum A next. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about the nature of language, and then we're going to be talking as we get on. We'll take uh, some time on this. When we get to addendum 4B, we start, about ta start talking about the nature of language and thinking things like that. These are very big issues, and I uh, appreciate your interest in them. So we will uh, we'll see you next time. And so please do the assignment for next time. We normally get behind after the first session anyway, so don't worry about that. And, uh, and I'll pick up some of your questions for next time, and then we'll go on to the next chapter. Yes, Oz? For the next reaction paper, you want us to do it on the entire, entirety of chapter 4 and the addendum, or just like, what, at what point do you want to stop reading chapter 4? Uh, what does the assignment say? It says focused on section 1, but I don't know how you oh, Section that. 1 is just that little, uh, it, oh, hold on. Just the introduction. <laughs> and, um, okay, your assignment for next time. Yeah, take four, just that little introduction, and addendum 4A, which is later. Um, let me just check my assignment sheet here. Yeah, focus on section 1 and addendum 4A, right, which is kind of this traditional view of language. And what we're going to talk about is the notion that there is reduction of, 
there's reduction of reality to its smallest units. And, uh, and that's a modernistic conception, and we're going to try to get away from that. Now, as a final thing, guys, there was an article in the New York Times in 2005, 100 Years of Uncertainty. And this article here by uh, Brian Green, who is a uh, professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Elegant Universe. He talks about relativity and quantum theory. I printed this off for you guys. I'm going to put it at the back. Take one of these along. It describes the two-slit experiment and all that kind of stuff, and it's a very interesting treatment of all this. Okay, we'll see you next time.